I, I need to confess something. Um, when I was younger, for a number of years in my life, I was a 49ers fan. <laughs> look, look, I, I went to school in the Bay Area, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and, and man, there was, I'm, I'm not trying to make excuses, but there was Joe Montana, Steve Young, Jerry Rice, five Super Bowls. I just got caught up in all that. All right? Now, I, I know some of you are thinking about walking out right now. I totally understand. Um, <laughs> man. You just ha- but you have to know now that I am now and have been for almost two decades a dedicated Green Bay Packers fan. But there's no getting around it. When I first got to Madison in the late 90s, I was a big-time Niners fan. And so it was when I was invited to go watch a football game with some friends from Madison on January 3rd, 1999. And um, it's not just any old game, it was the wild card playoff game between the Niners and the Packers. Now I go there and I'm the only Niner fans in a room of green and gold. You know, there's nachos, wings, good stuff. And then, you know, there's some fun joshing back and forth, and that all stopped. <laughs> Tension was rising. And then eight seconds left, Packers up by four. Niners have the ball, 25-yard line, one final shot. Steve Young drops back, throws the ball into a sea of five Packer defenders. But the hands that rose up to snag the ball belong to Terrell Owens, a Niners wide receiver. Touchdown, game over. I was jumping up and down, screaming my head off. I'm trying to high-five everybody in the room. Within seconds, I was noticing something was wrong. <laughs> like, the, the high-fives were not connecting. And I listened, it's like the room was quiet, the room was tense. One guy looked like he was about to throw his mug into the TV screen. And so I was feeling exuberant, I was excited, and I was also feeling really uncomfortable. Right? There was this tension because I was completely out of phase with the people in that room, people that I know, people that I'm close to. Today, I want to talk about that feeling. I want to talk about this discomfort that we feel, the tension that we feel when we are completely out of phase with the people around us. Because the Bible tells us that tension, living in that tension, is part of what it means to follow Jesus. But before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles, and I am really a Green Bay Packers fan. (laughs) I'm also one of the pastors on the teaching team. Um, So uh, welcome to all of you who are in the room and those of you joining us uh, in Fitchburg, downtown, Traditions, Gospel Fusion. A big hello to all of you watching online, those of you who are listening to our podcast. To the Chinese speakers, and to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto tenerlos aquí con nosotros. And to every one of you here, and those of you watching, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so very glad you joined us. Now, we are in our fall sermon series called Empowered for Mission, and we are reading the book of Acts. The first seven chapters of Acts tell the stories of the church in her infancy. They reveal the church's DNA. So chapter one, we find out that we as God's people, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit for a mission, a mission to help God establish his kingdom on earth. Chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives the church the power to cross cultural and language barriers 
And then this, this, this brand new multicultural, multilingual church begins to form a brand new way of doing community that is about teaching, that is about worship, and about doing life together. Last week, we got to chapter three. And we get to the church bearing witness to Jesus by bringing wholeness and healing to the world around us. So today, we're gonna go to chapter four. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, go to Acts chapter four, or if you have your journal, okay? Now today, we're gonna tackle one of the big ideas in the book of Acts. And the big idea is the people of God, the kingdom of God, lives in tension with the world around us. And this is the first of three sermons in which we're gonna be tackling this issue. Now the story in Acts chapter four flows directly from Acts chapter three. So here's a little quick reminder of what happened in Acts three. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John, Jesus' disciples, they heal a man who has been unable to, unable to walk since birth, and they do it right at the gate of the temple. This was a big news. Everybody sees it, everybody's going, whoa, look at this amazing story. People are so excited, and so Peter and John are like, well, hey, time for a sermon. And so they start talking. And that's how chapter three ends. And we pick up the story in chapter four, verse one. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So you have the priest, you have the captain of the temple guard, and you have the Sadducees. Now these are the religious authorities. These are the people who run the temple. Now, now remember, there was a healing that happened, right, in the temple. That's good news, right? You should be excited about that. People should be all going, yeah. I mean, if you're running the temple, you'd be like, hey, come to the temple. People get healed. This is good PR, right? So what's their reaction? Greatly disturbed. Why? Because Peter and John, they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Huh. Now, why is that a problem? Now, if you remember the talk two weeks ago, okay, resurrection doesn't just mean people coming back from the dead. Resurrection means something very specific in first century Judaism. Okay? Resurrection means the coming of the final days. It means the coming of the day of the Lord. It means now God is in the, now in the final age coming to make the world right, and he's going to turn the world right side up and remake everything. So resurrection is about a great overturning of the social order, which means when people start talking about resurrection, the people in charge, they get a little nervous because, you see, if you have the power right now, you're on top, where will you be when the world turns upside down? And so these leaders, they, well, they're not sure what to do, and it's, well, getting late. Let's put them in jail, and we'll figure it out tomorrow. Okay. So the story continues. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So we have a veritable who's who 
of the Jewish establishment. You got the rulers, you got the elders, you got the teachers. And on top of that, you have the high priest plus his family members. Now, the high priest family and a few other families, they virtually run the temple. The temple is their domain. The temple is their, is their source of power and authority. This is their golden goose, okay? This is their spot. So you got everybody showing up. This is an august assembly, right? People's here, they, they are amazing people. And on the other side, you have Peter and John. Fishermen, people who work with their hands. From Galilee, that's Boondocks, Nowheresville. This is the biggest moment of their lives. And they grill them. They ask them a question. Even the question you can tell, right? They don't think much of these guys, right? By what power or what name did you do this? Meaning, you couldn't have done this by yourself. You're not the kind of people that can do something like this. You have some kind of authority. You have some kind of power. You have some kind of spiritual guru that's helping you doing this, right? Power differential. That's what we're seeing here. Okay. And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just do a quick pause there. Remember the first week of this series. We are people empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the mission, which is to bear witness to Jesus. Well, Peter is about to bear witness to Jesus. And guess who's all over that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up big time. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed. Do you get Peter's drift? Like, hey, you temple authority types. We've been arrested and now you put us on trial because of an act of kindness. We healed a guy who was unable to walk since birth, and you put us on trial. That's the kind of people you are. Jab, jab, jab. Okay? I think we're getting the impression that this moment is not too big for Peter. But Peter says, since you asked, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. You want to know where our power is coming from? You want to know? You, do you really want to know? Okay. Jesus, the guy you killed. That guy. Oh, yeah, by the way, God resurrected him from the dead. That's right. Resurrection of the dead. The great overturning. The coming of the day of the Lord. And you temple types, religious authority types, you're the first ones going down. Now, how do I know Peter is saying that? Because Peter then quotes Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, we Madisonians in 21st century, we're like Psalm 118. We don't know what it means, but they do. You see, Psalm 118 is a psalm associated with the temple. In fact, it is a song that's used in processions. As people enter into the temple, they will sing Psalm 118. Okay? It's a temple psalm. And in this, in this psalm, there is this mysterious line, okay? verses 22 and 23, that says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Yahweh, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that marks God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so 
the cornerstone on which the temple is built, is, is that, that stone was previously rejected by the builders. Something core in the building of the temple has been rejected by people. Nobody knows what that means. Except it's a good thing because God did this. God, it's a God kind of thing. God likes to show the limits of human wisdom. God likes to show that people can't see, but God can see. And so Peter grabs Psalm 118, and he grabs this verse, and he says, guess what? This verse in Psalm 118 is about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple of God that God is building right now with the church. You see what he's saying. You're running the old temple. That temple is going away. There is now a new temple of God founded on Jesus. And you better get in line or you're all going down. Which is why he says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. God is here in this final age, the great day of the Lord, in which he's turning the world right side up. And he's established his kingdom with Jesus being the king, which means you must pledge allegiance to be part of this kingdom. Now, I'm going to pause here and talk a bit more about verse 12, because the idea contained in this verse is very, very, very unpopular in our culture. In fact, some of you, in reading it, you might feel a little uncomfortable as well. And the reason for that is because this verse makes an exclusive claim. It says Jesus is the only way. Now, in our culture, you can be religious if you want. You can be spiritual if you want. Believe in Jesus. Go right ahead. But when you say things like this, the moment you say things like this, you, you, you are putting down other religions. Right? You, you, you are saying they're wrong about what they believe in practice, which means you, what you're saying is offensive. You are being closed-minded and bigoted. Now, much of that reaction comes out of our culture's embrace of relativism, the belief that there is no absolute truth, that anyone's belief is as good as anybody else's. And that's a really big topic, and we can tackle it for another day. But I also think that the way we, the church talks about salvation also contributes to the problem. Okay? You see, for hundreds of years now, the churches, we talk about salvation as, hey, you are saved from judgment so that you can go to heaven after you die. And heaven, of course, is paradise, where life is perfect, and you get your heart's desire. Now, when we talk about salvation that way, people go, oh, yeah, I want to be saved. In fact, everybody should be saved. And then we say, oh, no, 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 you have to believe in Jesus for that to happen. And so what happens? Jesus becomes the gatekeeper for heaven. Jesus becomes the bouncer for heaven. He's checking your ID. Ah, uh, do you have the Jesus stamp? Yeah, Jesus stamp, all right, go right in, have fun. No Jesus stamp. Oh, I'm sorry, man, too bad. Do you see it? Right? If, if heaven is this wonderful place where everybody wants to go, and you don't really have to live a good life to get in, just have to believe in Jesus, then it, the whole requirement to believe in Jesus feels really arbitrary, feels kind of mean, feels kind of petty. Right? That's a problem. Because then we see Jesus as a barrier to people going to heaven. 
And that's the opposite of how it should be. This is a problem. The problem is the way we talk about heaven has been, become divorced from the story of the Bible. See, in the story of the Bible, heaven is not this awesome place where everybody wants to go. In the story of the Bible, heaven is not this place where you get whatever your heart desires. No, 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 no. In the story of the Bible, heaven is the place where God established his reign on earth, and Jesus is the king. He's in charge, which means you don't get what you want. Jesus gets what he wants. Jesus being king is the defining feature of heaven. Okay? So knowing God, experiencing God, being part of a community that submits to Jesus, those are the primary features that distinguishes heaven and not heaven. Do you see the difference? If we talk about heaven as a place, a cool place where everybody wants to go, then requiring belief in Jesus feels arbitrary and petty. But when heaven is the place where Jesus is king, then Having to pledge allegiance to Jesus seems like a very reasonable entrance requirement. When I was 10 years old, my family immigrated to the United States of America. Five years after that, my, my parents, they, they took the citizenship test and they swore an oath of allegiance to this country and they became citizens of this country. Nobody says that's closed-minded and bigoted because it just makes sense that you should be loyal to a country before you can be a citizen of that country. Well, in the same way, you should pledge allegiance to Jesus before you become part of a kingdom where Jesus is king. Does that make sense? A bit of a detour. But that's what Peter's really getting at. Right? Peter's getting at, he says, salvation is found in nowhere else because if you want to enter into a kingdom of God where Jesus is king and all the other kingdoms are fading away, well, Pledge allegiance to Jesus really is the only way. Let's get back to the story. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men have been with Jesus. Now, this word here is important. Okay? The Greek word here for courage is parousia. parousia. It can be translated courage, but it can also be translated as confidence. And... I'm not fully on board with the translation of courage here. Because to me, courage conveys the idea of a character trait. Somebody who's fearless. Or somebody who can do normal, do act normal in a, in a scary situation. And that's not really Peter and John. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Peter and John are not fearless type of people. Rather, you notice the, the parousia that Peter and John have, they come out of having been with Jesus. This is why I think confidence is a much better translation. Right? People who know Jesus, people who have been with Jesus, they gain in their parousia, they gain in their confidence. Why? Because they learn to see the world clearly. They learn to see the world through the lens of the story of the Bible. And when you have that kind of clarity, you have confidence in what you say and what you do. And very quickly, you start doing things and saying things that are very different from the people of this world. People like the religious leaders. Verse 14. 
But since they could see the men who had been healed standing there with them, okay, the guy who was healed was like right there in, in, in the tribunal, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. I, I, Luke just sets us, up, sets us up for this delicious contrast. All right, just delicious contrast. You see, the, the religious leaders, they recognize in Peter and John their parousia, that they have confidence. And we recognize that the religious, religious leaders don't. What do they have? Political calculation, right? Okay, here, here's the situation they're in. The religious leaders in the first century, they are the religious leaders of the Jewish people, but they owe their position to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire supports them and provides soldiers to protect them because they deliver on taxes and they keep the people calm so they don't have uprisings and rebellion. Now, they have this kind of authority because, well, they run the temple. So people ascribe to them some kind of a spiritual authority. But the moment that disappears, the people will ignore them, and so will the Roman Empire. And so Luke just unveils all of kind of the underlying calculation right here. He's showing you what's going on in their heads. And what you have is, these, these, Peter and John, the things they're talking about, resurrection, that's a threat to us. We don't like that. But you know what's a bigger threat? Doing something to these guys, because they're really popular right now. Political calculation. <laughs> That's what's going on. In contrast. Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The, the comparison, the contrast is laid bare. You have Peter and John, you have the, 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 judicial, the, the, the religious leaders, you have clarity, confidence, parousia, and you have political calculation. Peter and John's like, God, you. Huh. Duh. Clarity. Clarity. What do the religious leaders have? They can't make a decision. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This story right here in the book of Acts is the first time we have this conflict between the kingdom of God and the world surrounding. Okay, the first one. And, uh, and, Peter and Peter and John, they get arrested for one night and they get a stern talking to. Things will get much, much worse. And we're going to see that in this series coming up. But for us, this passage highlights the situation that we are in as the people of God in this time period. Now, I showed you this diagram a couple weeks ago. All right? It's the New Testament's author's understanding of human history. There's, the human history is divided into two eras. There is the age of the kingdoms of this world, and then there's the age where God establishes his kingdom on earth, and that kingdom is, goes on forever and ever. It goes into eternity. Okay? The two great ages. 
And then there is this time of overlap between the two kingdoms. So the kingdom of God begins here, but not entirely. Okay? Not entirely. The popular phrase to describe this period is called the already and the not yet. That part of the kingdom is already here and part of the kingdom is not yet. So Jesus is now the king. Absolutely, in heaven ruling. And yet, we wait for that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We already have forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but man, we yearn that day when we can know God and have full intimacy with God. We already have the Holy Spirit, but we look forward to that day when the fruits of the Spirit are fully present in our lives and in the community around us. Jesus has already performed healing. And that points to the day when there will be no more sickness. And Jesus' already resurrection tells us that death will one day die. Already and not yet. Now there's one more thing I need to tell you about this period of time. And that is these two kingdoms are in conflict. They're in conflict. They're not the same. The ethics and values of the kingdom of God are not the same as the ethics and values of 21st century Madison. Now that's kind of a no-duh, like, well, that's pretty obvious. And it looks pretty nice on a diagram like this. But here's the thing, we actually have to live in that. And you know what the problem is? We get 21st century Madison. It's our culture. We grew up in it. We are formed by it. We're shaped by it. We get it. But when it comes to kingdom values, uh, not so much. You see, every single one of us is born here, okay? We are immigrants in the kingdom of God. We pledged an oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ, and now we're part of the kingdom, and we come in and we go, oh, really? That's how you do things? That's kind of weird. Read the Bible. Really? Huh, I'm not sure I understand this Bible. We get our culture. We get where it's coming from. We don't get where God's coming from. Which, if you think about it, makes total sense. Of course we don't get what's God, where God's coming from. Of course not. It, we, not immediately. It's going to take some time. It's going to take a lifetime. It may be longer than that. But what that means is this. It is uncomfortable living between these two kingdoms. It is tense. It means that for Christ followers, questions and doubts are normal. Normal. Oh, and on top of that, we have people around us, people who love us, family and friends, and they're like, we don't get the kingdom values at all. We don't understand what's going on. Why are you part of that thing? We don't get it. And, and we feel that tension with them, right? Like a Niner fans in a room of green and gold. There's that tension, that, that, that discomfort we feel when we just feel differently and see differently everywhere we go, right? Internal tension, external tension. Let me make something really, really clear here, okay? When you choose to follow Jesus, at that moment, the world should begin to feel not like home anymore, okay? And for those of you who are not yet Christ followers, you're thinking about it, <laughs> you should know this, okay? If 
you choose to follow Jesus, you are signing up for a life of discomfort and tension. I thought you should know that. Okay? Just being upfront. Okay? Living in the tension is part of what it means to follow Jesus. So how do we live in this tension? How do we live in a kingdom that's already not yet? How do we live in a, in, in a kingdom that's in opposition, in conflict with the world around us? Okay, now those are really, really big questions. And there are tons of books written on this. So with what's left of my time, what I want to do is see if we can learn something from Peter and John and the church in their reaction to what's happening. So let's go back to chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay, so Peter and John, they got arrested, and then they had this grilling from this incredibly big-time tribunal, and then they come home. Do they go take a nap? No. The first thing they do, they go to their community, and they go talk about it, right? They're, They're talking it out. They're processing with their community. To live in the tension that we live in, we have to do it in community. We can't do it by ourselves. That's what the community is for. Following Jesus is hard. There is that internal internal tension where like, I think this way, but the Bible seems to be saying something different, and I don't know where the God's coming from. There's that, and then there's the tension of this growing distance between me and the culture around me and the people I love. How do I live in that? How do I process that? How do I make decisions? How do I live? How do I work? How do I go to school? All those questions. How do we resolve them? We need community. We need people who who, who know you and love you, and we can be doing that, talking that out together. So my question to you is, do you have Christ followers in your life where you can raise up questions and doubts? Do you have Christ followers in your life where you go, I'm not sure I agree with this passage in the Bible. I don't understand it. Do you have groups in your life where you can do that without being judged? You see, we need to have people in our lives, Christ follower community in our life, where honest wrestling is not just tolerated, but actually embraced. And we as a church need to be places where that can happen because this is normal for Christ followers. When they heard this, they, uh, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And so the second thing they do, they have a prayer meeting. <laughs> so they go back to the community, they talk things over, then they get together and they do corporate prayer. And this is something that we absolutely need because we are the people of God who are empowered by the Holy Spirit for a mission. And when we're living in this tension of the world we're living in, sometimes we just don't have the right answers. So what do we do? We go to God together. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in this world at this time. So prayer. One last thing. They start praying, and we get to verse 25, and we get to an interesting section of this prayer. You spoke by the Holy Spirit, they're talking to God, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Okay, so I don't know how often you do this, but they're praying and they're quoting the Old Testament. 
Okay? I don't know how often you do this in your prayers. But they're quoting the Old Testament, and they're not just grabbing any old passage. They're grabbing Psalm 2. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalm 2, I did a sermon on Psalm 2 last summer, 2020. Go check it out. Okay? But here's what you need to know about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a dramatic portrayal of God and his Messiah, his anointed one, establishing the reign of God on earth. And they're in conflict with the rulers of the earth. And Psalm 2 says, God and his Messiah has already triumphed. Peter and John, they have this tribunal thing with, with the religious leaders. They come back, they talk things over, they're processing, and then they pray together. And as they're praying, they, their minds go to Psalm 2. And they're going, oh yeah, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. What is that about? Well, see, see what they do with it. Next passage. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to cons conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Huh. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see what's going on here? They are interpreting what's happening through the lens of Psalm 2. Right? They have this encounter. Peter and John have this encounter, and then they go, ah, what's happening here is what's going on in Psalm 2, this, this conflict between God and his Messiah and the kingdom of this world. You see, well, J Jesus was a king of the kingdom of God, and he, they killed him already. They killed the king of the kingdom of, of kingdom of God. That's the first salvo of the battle. So what's going on today? That's a continuation of that struggle. So do we get nervous? Do we get scared? Heck No. Psalm 2 tells us that God and his Messiah has already triumphed. So there's absolutely no reason for fear, no reason for concern, no reason for anxiety. Instead, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great paresia, confidence. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Great paresia is what they're praying for. Why? Because they have clarity. They have clarity. Because they're seeing what's happening around them through the lens of the story of the Bible. And when you have that in your mind, you're like, yep, I get what's going on. I know what to say. I know what to do. I have confidence because I know what's happening. Look, we read the Bible for a variety of reasons. For encouragement, for good advice, for growing our faith. But one of the most important functions of the Bible is to help us see the world around us, to learn to see the world through a biblical worldview. One of the most important functions for people we're living in this time of the already and not yet. So do you have people in your lives who can help you? Right? Start thinking about what's going on in your life and help that connect to scripture. Do you have people like that? Do you have a community like that where, where you're diving deep into the word? Because here's my question for you. If you were there in that room with Peter and John, would your mind have gone to Psalm 2? Do you know the Bible well enough for that? We are the people of God empowered for a mission. 
And we are a people living in the tension of this already and not yet and a world that's in conflict with the world around us. We need to be in community, a community where we can be open of our doubts and our questions. We need to be in community that prays and bring our questions and our, and our struggles before God. And we need to be in a community that knows and studies scripture so that we can see what's going on in our world and see it through the lens of the Bible. And when we do that, we become people of paresia, people of confidence, because we have clarity. Let me pray for us. Father, we yearn to be people of paresia. We yearn to be people who, who see things clearly, see the world the way you see the world. So we want to do that, Father. So what we pray for is that we take the initiative to join communities like that, to join with people so we can create spaces where we can voice our questions, voice our doubts. We can be places where, where we can pray and acknowledge our weakness and acknowledge our brokenness. And we can be places where we're diving deep into your word and we're connecting that to what's happening in our world. We want to be people who see things clearly, people of confidence, so that we can further your kingdom, the mission you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray.